Welcome to Thought Leaders, a podcast dedicated to connecting you to experts in the field of science, technology, healthcare, and business. I'm your host, Julie, and today's episode is centered on femtech, an increasingly popular term short for female technology. It includes a handful of applications, devices, products, and diagnostics that cater to women's health. Female health has always been underrepresented and neglected, whether in research, product development, or funding startups centered on addressing these health issues that women face. This has been a pressing issue and only recently have people with the ability to fund and accelerate the growth of startups in this space realized this unmet need. Other catalysts contributing to this rapid growth include the increased demand for digital health solutions, inclusive solutions for women's health and well-being, and promoting a woman's sense of self-worth. In fact, just to give you an idea of how fast the femtech space is growing, the size of the femtech market in 2018 was approximately 16.5 billion US dollars, and it is anticipated to skyrocket to 60 billion by 2027. To discuss all these matters in greater detail and gain perspectives from someone who's currently innovating in the femtech space, I'm pleased to be joined by Rachel Bartholomew. Prior to entering the space, Rachel has been in the Canadian startup space for over 10 years, developing investment, marketing, and branding strategies for a handful of small businesses, providing entrepreneurial consulting services, teaching and developing courses in a variety of business-related topics at the University of Waterloo, and founded the Mod Market, a software-as-a-service platform. Two weeks after successfully selling this business, she was unfortunately diagnosed with cervical cancer and while she was receiving treatment, she found inspiration to start High Ivy Health, where I actually worked on a super interesting side project with her. And of course, we will talk all about High Ivy Health in today's episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's really an honor to have you here. And I'm super excited for today's episode as I feel like your story is so empowering. And I really just can't wait for everyone to hear it and for all your perspectives on the femtech space. So to start things off at the very beginning of your journey of starting High IV Health, which was around the time that you were receiving your cancer treatments, I was wondering if you could walk us through that light bulb moment that made you realize that you really needed to step up and really start taking things into your own hands. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I'm an innovator through and through. I think if I'm not creating and not problem solving, I I feel like I'm not doing my job as a human on this earth. So, uh, you know, I had uh, had a company previously, uh, went back into the workforce, was working there for about a year and then left the workforce. And that two weeks later was when I got my cancer diagnosis and, you know, something you don't necessarily plan for. Um, but it was really interesting because I got hustled through the process really quickly within probably a month and a half was on the operating table. Uh, so I was diagnosed in April, 2019 and then operating table, June 5th, 2019. I don't think I'll ever forget that date. And essentially I had a full hysterectomy and a bunch of lymph nodes removed. And it's interesting because as I started my recovery process, you know, your body is often shut down, but your brain is going like a hundred miles per hour. And so I was resting, connecting with women. There was, um, all of these really amazing Facebook groups of women online, uh, that I started to connect into and just started posting and asking their advice and getting their experience and feedback. And these are private groups that women just overshare 
dramatically in. And I was noting, noticing this trend in this aftercare side of, you know, coming out the other end of treatments and how your pelvic health was. Uh, it was interesting because I had actually had pelvic floor uh, issues 11 years prior. I had some PTSD after getting uh, an incision for a Barthol's gland cyst, which caused me to hold all my stress and my tension in my pelvic floor. When I went and saw in my area, there was like two pelvic floor therapists at the time in my general, like 50 kilometer span area. It's gotten a little bit better, but not much. I started seeing her and she's like, oh my gosh, if you were to have a baby right now, like there's no way you could be able to, to give birth like vaginally. So um, I was given the current standard of care uh, called the vaginal dilator. It is essentially a, a bunch of sticks, candlesticks with a hand that increased in size and they were created in 1938. I thought I was done with it. And then of course, lo and behold, after my cancer treatments, it's like, oh, yep, she's back uh, in into play. So unfortunately, I had to, you know, get the dust off of her <laughs> and, and bring out the, the dilator. And it was interesting, as I started to dive into the, the stuff that these women were sharing, I realized that this vaginal dilator, everybody hated using. It was a terrible process. They just decided that they were going to accept defeat. Uh, and a lot of women were going through divorces and going back into the hospital system for surgeries. And I was just like, there has to be a better way to do this on top of like, why hasn't anyone really innovated on this in 83 years? There has been some innovation, but nothing that truly looks at the encompassing experience of what a woman goes through during dilation, but also just the basic like ergonomics and functionality of a vagina. Like, why do we not know this information? And why hasn't anyone put this into just the innovative design process that we should be going through when we create human-centered product. So as an innovator, as someone with a lot of time on her hands, I, I took up the challenge to try to, to innovate on this space. And I came up with the idea around July, uh, did all the kind of medical and user research that I could do upfront. I started my radiation treatments in September and through radiation, you are in the hospital every single day. Uh, so it's like a full-time job, but I used it as an opportunity to get uh, exposure to doctors. And so I chatted with everyone who would listen to me and, um, you know, I was getting lined up under the radiation machine and pitching to Bruce, who was my radiation oncologist uh, or radiation therapist at the time, who, you know, shared my my vision with others. And then next thing you know, my oncologist is is calling me into the office to talk about it. So now I don't, I always say I don't expect anyone to do that uh, during you know, cancer treatments, but it's been a great way for me to kind of deal with my condition in my own way and kind of a distraction and um, away from the, the terribleness of going through treatments. So yeah, so I got the medical validation I needed after that and did my first pitch competition on the business in December, 2019. And the rest is pretty much history for high IV. <laughs> Wow, so that was really incredible. And to think that you were even pitching these ideas to your doctors who were actively giving you treatment 
that's like crazy in the best possible way. And of course, everyone is different in how they deal with traumatic events, such as getting diagnosed with cancer, which is obviously completely understandable, of course, but your way of dealing with the situation was really how everything with High Ivy started. Yeah. Honestly, I can't even imagine your reaction when you found out how old these treatments were because I feel like if I was there, I would have been terrified and I probably would have felt very hopeless because how much has technology and medicine changed since then, right? And to think that maybe it's because nothing could have possibly been done in these 70 to 80 years, as you were saying, it's like, is that even possible? Like, I don't know. I'm really glad that you made the choice you did, though. And I'm sure that many women out there will be grateful for as well moving forward. Um, So now that we sort of understand how High Ivy was formed, can you kind of tell us how you guys are currently innovating in the femtech space and sort of touch upon the impact that this could potentially have? Yeah, for sure. So we focus on uh, pelvic health conditions. So the statistic is one in three women will have some sort of pelvic health condition in her lifetime. We think of it from pre-menstruation all the way to post-menopause and beyond. We go through things like, you know, painful periods to painful sex to uh, giving birth multiple times all the way to pretty much every woman is going to go through, which is menopause. Uh, and these are life impacting changes, not only from, you know, other functionalities in your body, but it really takes the toll on your pelvic health. And so uh, when we looked at this area of medicine, we realized that there is new research coming out separating uh, what we call hypo and hypertonic pelvic floor. So hypotonic, think of it as giving birth or going through a hormonal change where you lose that laxity in your muscles and things kind of give out. And this is when we have things like prolapse and um, other conditions that happen with a woman after she's given birth or or went through uh, menopausal changes. Does it mean that there can't be some hypertonic uh, issues, which I'll kind of talk about, but uh, essentially that's where things like Kegels come into play and strengthening your pelvic floor. Uh, And there's a number of ways that you can do that as well as support issues of prolapse. Subsequently on the hypertonic side is very tight, very dense muscles, very tight tissues with a lot of scar tissue and this creating its own bit of problems. So uh, incontinence in a different way than we see with our hypotonic group, all the way to severe pain and just structural issues. The problem with the hypertonic space is that nobody has given it attention. All the attention has went to the hypotonic space because we see Kegel exercisers out there. We see electrostimulators, we see pessaries, all of these products that are being innovated on and it's starting to get really overcrowded. And unfortunately, a lot of people think pelvic health, they think Kegels, but not understanding that if you're experiencing a lot of pain and you're experiencing a lot of like troubles, inserting tampons and that type of thing, often that can be leading towards the hypertonic side. And in that case, you wouldn't go to, the gym to work out a muscle if it was sore or if it had a knot in it or if it was really dense and tight you would go to a massage therapist and work it out it's the same concept for hypertonic so the dilator is essentially there to help stretch the muscle to help break down the scar tissue and to bring that elasticity back into that surrounding tissue and area so this is used in combination with pelvic floor therapy We think that pelvic floor physiotherapy is important for all women across all spectrum. I think it is 
something that should never be ignored and should be widely adopted. And we're getting there slowly, but we still have a lot of work to do. But essentially what we're doing is we are making a more enhanced and better dilator. So our device is a dilation system. It uses air with multiple chambers so that we can dilate at different points throughout the vaginal canal. We also pair it with heating. So similar to putting a heating pad on a sore muscle, it's the same sort of concept down there. We're also noticing that you know, not only does it help with relaxation, decreasing inflammation, it also helps with things like natural lubrication in this area. Uh, and that's paired with a bunch of biosensors. So we're collecting things like intervaginal temperatures, looking at the pressure status of the pelvic floor from involuntary muscle contractions and that tissue elasticity. That's all paired up and sent to a mobile application that the patient uses to not only track their progress and gamify and, and schedule and all of these things, connect with their doctor, but we also are collecting subjective data. So really looking at the demographic side and some of these things that you can't capture with a device, like your mental health, how's that doing today? How's your stress? How's your pain? How's your physical body overall? And we pair that with the objective data and then send that off to the prescribing clinician. So we have a software portal that the clinician monitors that patient remotely. Essentially think of it like diabetes or heart monitoring uh, that is often done from home. It's the same sort of concept before the pelvic floor. So we are one of the only that are really innovating in this space and bringing sensors to this, you know, this application of medicine. And luckily we're able to target a number of areas like cancer to endometriosis, to PCOS, to menopausal atrophy, to postpartum tearing, and all these things that happen on the hypertonic side. Yeah. So all of that is really fascinating. And that device sounds so advanced, incredible. So I just want to say that I'm looking forward to it. And, you know, this is definitely something more advanced than something that was created in the 1930s. So that's yeah. all really wonderful to think about. Shifting gears a little bit, I saw that you guys had recently secured 1.1 million Canadian in pre-seed funding, which is actually so amazing and exciting to hear. So first of all, I want to say a huge congratulations as I know this money will really accelerate things moving forward. And given this, I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through your approach and strategy for this recent funding round. Yeah, sure. So it is our first private investment into the company. So we've done a bunch of public through government grants and that type of thing. Um, but this was our first real investor money. The process is definitely interesting. Uh, it's actually my first time ever going through it. I've actually stood on the other side before as a VC looking at as an analyst, essentially. And I didn't go through that process with my first company. So it was my first time going through it. They say you got to talk to 100 before you get your first yes. I think I talked to maybe 70, 60, 70 before I got my first yes. So still, still a lot. Um, and you know, that transition from a no to a yes happened within a week. So really it, it's all about leveraging your networks. It's all about leveraging the connections that you have, getting warm introductions and persisting. Like I think persistence is a huge thing. I crossed my T's and dotted my I's in every single which way I could. And even then, you know, everyone was impressed with the amount of information that I brought to the table, but it is a huge process. So, um, you know, be weary of the time that you spend on it. I think it took me a month to put my data room together uh, overall. The closing process took, I would say, I mean, 
to finalize the closing, it was a whole year. So it is a process that you have to be ready for. Uh, and understanding the terminology, it's a different world of business, right? It's something that we often don't play in. And so you have to learn that terminology and kind of keep up with the Joneses in terms of what they, how they speak and how they interact and what they're looking for. But you have to also do your due diligence on them just as much as they are on you. These are people that you're getting into like a marriage, a little mini marriage with right? So really understanding their motivations and, you know, why they're interested in you um, and how they operate and if that's going to operate well with you. And so I was really lucky. I have the most amazing group of investors through this, this round. And my first investor has been a huge champion of ours. Uh, He's our lead investor and came out of a connection and is just like really, really believes in us. And you can't ask for anything better than that. But you know, it's it's one of those things that it can be very discouraging. You got to keep persisting through the the nose to get to that yes. And once you get that yes, not every yes is going to be best for you either, right? So you really have to look at what is strategic for you and what works best in your terms and work through the terms in a, in a, way that works for both sides. But yeah, it's it's really about focusing on that partnership uh, aspect of it and know that as soon as you raise, you will always be raising from here on end. So I'm already prepping for the next round. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for walking us through that, Rachel. It sounds like a very tiring process, like you said, and I feel like it would be extremely draining if you weren't truly passionate about what it is you're pitching for. So I'm glad that you were able to successfully get through that and for High Ivy to keep on growing. Um, so while we're still on the topic of funding, I mentioned earlier that investors are starting to really realize the potential that the femtech space has. So with your recent experience and what you were able to raise, I wanted to ask if you think that the femtech space is at that point where there's enough funding being invested into women's health or is there much more that needs to be invested in this space? I think there's a pretty obvious answer (laughs) to that. Um, No, there is not enough funding. No, it is not easily accessible, but there's so much work to do. Like, and it's not just femtech. Like I can, I can speak to the femtech side, but When we look at business as a whole, the first thing is we need more women in startups and taking risks and creating products and innovating and leading companies. Subsequently, we need a lot more women to step into VC. I think the the statistic is like 7% of women investors are women. How do you get through to someone, uh, especially in something that is so specific to women like gynecological health? How do you connect with somebody on that if they don't even connect to that body part because they don't have it, right? So I think we have to have more women at the table on both sides or else the statistics are never going to get there. How that happens, I think we could spend like hours talking about that. But subsequently for, for women's health, I think too, it's not just investment, it's research, it's data, it's everything. It's the way we treat women when they walk into a doctor's office. All of this needs to be re-looked at and re-examined and thought about properly because the things you learn as you dive into the femtech world about like heart health and the fact that all of the prescription drugs that we take have never been actually properly tested on women accurately. The fact that we use skinny males um, skinny, tall males as representatives of women in, in clinical trials, like it's unheard of. Um, and that's not even in 
women's specific health. That's just in general healthcare. We need to start to have a gender lens on how we make decisions in healthcare in general. And so I think part of that plays into a lot of this. It's starting to change femtech as a term and as a concept is helping change that. And I think the more that this grows and the more it becomes hot, the more investors are going to start putting their eyes and lens on it. I still find investors to this day who think it's niche. And I'm like, I don't know if 50 percent of the population is niche, but like, you know, you, whatever, uh, to each their own, I guess. Right. But it's, it's tough. It's a tough, uh, tough space, but as we start to put more emphasis on it, we'll, we'll start to get more funding. And as more women get involved in, in venture capital, it can only get better from here. Yeah. I totally agree with everything you just said you know, as more companies start to enter this space as well, and it gets more, like, you know, more competition, these things need to keep up with that, right? So, mm-hmm. of course, like, you know, more competition is not a bad thing for women, it puts pressure on the industry to make better products and drive down prices, etc. So, um, you know, talking about competition now, this is sort of something that I learned while working with you on that project. And we were working on like a sort of competitor analysis where we were checking out what other companies in this space were really innovating and developing on. So, you know, I learned personally that there's a lot of really cool stuff being developed in this space. However, as we both saw, there are some companies that are trying to take shortcuts, right? And that's not okay by like any means whatsoever. And given that that we're talking about people's health and that's what these companies are dealing with, it's not okay. So we found some companies that were making like unsubstantiated claims, some that weren't conducting clinical trials, even though they said they were. And one company was even faking their reviews. So I was wondering if you can explain why some of these things are happening and what needs to change in order to protect women from these types of things. Oh, so (laughs) why these things are happening, I can only speak to my area of pelvic health. I can't speak to the rest of the areas of healthcare for for women in femtech specifically, but I'm sure it is happening elsewhere and it's other forms and functions. But in terms of pelvic health, part of the reason that this is happening is because a lot of devices go into the vagina. And as soon as you go in and around that space, you easily can um, leverage the terminology of sexual wellness and these wellness claims that bridge this gap between the novelty or sex toy industry to medical and healthcare. And because it is so costly to go through and and time consuming to go through the FDA process and uh, clinical trials and all of these things, often, you know, it's just easier pathway to get to revenues and to get to market by not going through FDA and clinical trials. And unfortunately, in the sex toy industry, there is no oversight over what goes in your body and what you do from a sexual standpoint. There's a lot of people arguing that the sex toy industry should have more oversight into it because I mean, things are going in your body and they can damage you. And if that level of safety, which is why the FDA and Health Canada and all these other regulatory bodies exist, is to protect you and to be safe and to make sure that it is effective. But part of that is like, there's, you know, arguments to say is is sexual health healthcare. I I believe it is. I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, But often 
you know, they'll just say, well, yeah, that's just a function of being a human and whatever else. Right. So it's a very complex problem uh, that we're going through in this pelvic floor space. What we need to do to protect women from these types of things. And I mean, all we can really do is have companies that come to the forefront who put in the work of doing clinical trials and clinical efficacy in combination with going through the regulatory approvals, going through the process of getting uh, a lens on those companies that are taking those pathways and raising the bar on what should be acceptable while really showcasing what is acceptable from a terminology standpoint and what is dangerous. And I think one thing that women can do in this area specifically is do your research, learn about what it means to be FDA approved. And I know that it's really challenging. I didn't even know this uh, until you start to look at all the terminology being used like FDA registered or FDA approved materials. It doesn't necessarily mean that the company has went through a proper evaluation with the FDA. So really understanding what is the product that you're using and what is the research that's backing it and learning about how to read that research and learning about how to, to navigate the FDA. But these are not easy things, nor do I think that just your general, you know, person who's not in the medical world can go ahead and read through those things. So always bringing it up to, to medical professionals and asking their opinions on it, always making sure that your pelvic floor therapist is helping you make those decisions, kind of getting a couple different feedback from different people. Um, and getting feedback from people who use these devices, I think is, is super important in a, in a real sense under your diagnosis and what you're experiencing. So I think that's just some of the ways, but there's a lot of infrastructural things that obviously have to happen to prevent this stuff from happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All these things really need to change because, you know, these, these are medical devices and therapeutics and rather than grouping everything into one general group, it, it's not just another female product, right? These, these are medical products that demand the same attention, regulation, and care that any other medical product should. So yeah. um, since we were talking about clinical trials, I heard that High IV was actually currently in the recruiting process for clinical trials. I think this May, right? That you, you're starting them. So that's Hopefully. super exciting. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you give us a few details about how the study will be conducted and what the process was like for you personally? Like this is your first time initiating clinical trials. So I was wondering what that, that was like for you. We're not quite in it yet. I think I've heard from a couple other med tech companies that once you're in clinical trials, you don't sleep. Like you're just sitting there, like holding your breath the entire time. And part of it is you, you know, drop your stuff off and you come back 12 weeks later and hope to God that things worked out in the way that they, you want them to. Right. So it's a scary process and it's a crazy process to learn. I have the most amazing partner in Hamilton Health Sciences and McMaster University. They have blown me out of the water in making this process so straightforward and really easy to understand. So I can't express enough um, gratitude to them for what they've done to help us through this process. Because yeah, it's my first time going through it. And a lot of my team, it's our first time going through it. So really getting that counsel and mentorship is uh, really, really key and critical. So we are conducting our first clinical trial, uh, hopefully this spring. It is with McMaster University uh, under the guidance of a doctor named Dr. Leonardi. 
uh, out of his endometriosis clinic. So we will be uh, focused on 20 endometriosis patients and looking at measurements of you know, chronic pelvic pain, all the way to inflammatory markers and a whole bunch of other things. It's a 12 week study. And so we're hoping to have our results in the fall of this year. Subsequently, we're hoping, you know, August, September of this year, we can funnel into our second clinical trial with cancer patients. So my own oncologist actually stepped up and uh, is our PI in this, uh, this clinical trial and really focusing on the feasibility and efficacy of our device in gynecological and colorectal patients who went through cancer and radiation treatments. So yeah, so we're hoping to have at least, you know, one said and done and one kind of in progress with some preliminaries by the end of the year. Uh, it definitely takes some time and, you know, publications and everything come out after, after the fact, but that'll be used to then go and get our, our FDA and Health Canada approvals if things go well obviously. Hopefully Um, they do. Yes. (laughs) Crossing our fingers, but yeah, we're conducting them all in Canada and the recruitment does happen out of the clinics themselves. So it's not like an open recruitment for anyone to join, but I mean, if anyone listening is uh, in the endometriosis clinic at McMaster or registered gynae colorectal patient at Grand River Cancer Center, ask, (laughs) ask to participate. Yeah, that sounds like a crazy year you have upcoming. This, yeah, this year, two it's going clinical to be. trials. Yeah, so that's super exciting. And of course, like I said, I hope it goes well. So yeah, as we discussed earlier, the femtech space, like we said, is slowly going through changes. And, um, you know, we saw like more investors that are interested in funding research. A lot of investors are now women, obviously not a lot. You said only 7%, but that's like yeah. a start, right? You know, they can actually advocate for women's health. And I also saw that there were accelerators that are purely dedicated to femtech companies. So, you know, you're an expert in this space. These are all good things that are happening. But, you mm-hmm. know, can you sh- sort of shed light on the other side of things? Like meaning like the challenges that entrepreneurs in this space still face. Yeah. So, I mean, I've kind of addressed most of it in the funding side. I think that's always going to be a problem, not just femtech, but women in general. I think funding is a huge piece of this. I think challenges in getting through, like when we think femtech, we think, you know, it is women's healthcare. And when you think healthcare, healthcare is a challenging road to go down. I didn't realize how challenging it would be. And we just need more women to kind of pull up their socks and go through that process of FDA, Health Canada, any reg approval certifications and, you know, clinical trials and efficacy. So, and it requires a long process with a lot of money needed and a lot of time to be allocated. And, you know, you say lots of money and long time before anything comes out of it. Uh, Investors often will cringe and walk away from that, right? So it requires a unique subset of investors that understand that. And, you know, challenging status quo and femtech, like how we've done women's health for this long, uh, there's a lot of areas of improvement that we need to go through. And, you know, just tackling that itself is, is challenging because how do you get people who've been doing it for 83 years to change how they've done it after 83 years, right? So um, there's a lot of challenges, but with that, is a lot of opportunity. And I, I like to kind of flip it and say, yes, these are challenges, but they're not challenges that can't be overcome uh, with women who, you know, like I said, pull up their socks and, and go out and do this. So I look at it all as an opportunity. I think Femtech, there's been multiple studies uh, that have come out, like McKinsey just came out with a report that shows there is 
literally white spaces of zero companies working in areas of women's health that need attention. And I, I actually run a group called Femtech Canada. And when I did the analysis in Canadian companies and we have our own healthcare system and everything like mental health with a woman's lens on it was non-existent menopause. I think there was one company total in menopause in all of Canada. Like there is huge gaps and even you know, some of the areas like pelvic health, yeah, there's a, a couple companies in the space, but like everyone's kind of doing their own thing in their own space. Uh, there are a couple companies that are com- competitive and they have the exact same solution, but there's still so much to be done. So I, I see it all as just femtech being this glowing opportunity for people to, to get involved. And I think part of it is just having women who will take the risk or, or men who will take the risk in these areas, putting more, more lenses on it and not being afraid to go down the pathway of data. I think data is so important in this, uh, not only from devices that generate data, but also clinical evidence and that type of thing. The more data we can generate, the better we can understand these things and start to frame solutions that can solve these problems that come out of substantiated data that often we're missing in a lot of these areas. So yeah, that's just a couple things, definitely more opportunity than challenge though. That's good to hear. Um, So I didn't know about like all that opportunity that you talked about, because from like my perspective, I saw that the femtech space was growing really fast. So I assumed that that meant it was it's getting more saturated and it's getting harder. But I like you, you're saying there's a lot more that can be done and there's a lot of room for innovation. So that's really great that you were able to touch upon that and for really, you know, shedding light on that matter. And, you know, this really just makes me have a greater sense of appreciation for everyone that's like currently in the femtech space because, you know, you have to deal with so much and to overcome that and to just like fight for a better solution for women. That's like big thing. So, you know, good job on that. <laughs> You're one <laughs> of the leaders. So um, to conclude, I wanted to ask if you had any advice for anyone that's going to be entering the femtech space like today. Yeah. So, um, I mean, some of it's already what I've said in terms of taking the risk, not being afraid of going medical first. Uh, especially since we mean we need more people to do that. Looking at femtech as not just uh, you know women's health specifically and and what that terminology is, but looking into things like LGBTQ plus two plus the you know getting good mentors to help you through this process. Um, that persistence and that ability to kind of step forward and take the risk with, with the proper research. Like it doesn't need to be like taking a risk. I say jumping off a cliff without a parachute, like you can have all of your arsenal with you to really make an impact and and get what you need to get done. Yeah. And tackling an area that you're passionate about so that you can persist through the tough times, I think is super important. And yeah, just more women to enter this space, I think is, or people in general enter this space in order to just push this, this narrative forward. We need so much more work to be done in this area. Yeah. So that was really great advice. And, you know, it it was sprinkled throughout the interview, but thank you for all that. And, you know, everything that you provided today during this episode. And so to end things off, I wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, shout out anything at all. So floor is yours. 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, we are recruiting for focus groups. Uh, so we are looking to connect with anyone who is going through any sort of pelvic health challenges, um, as well as clinicians in the space. So pelvic floor physiotherapists or OBGYNs or midwives or doulas or whoever, we are looking to connect with you and talk to you one-on-one through an interview. And we also have paid focus groups that are going on. You can find it on our website, uh, highiv.com, H-Y-I-V-Y. Y.com. There's a banner on the top that kind of asks uh, if you're interested and then you just fill out the information and we'll be in contact and you can follow us on any sort of socials at high IV health. And that's it. Yeah. So make sure you guys check that out. So with all that in mind, this episode of Thought Leaders comes to a wrap. I hope my discussion with Rachel was able to introduce you to the femtech industry and really illustrate the significant transformations and growth that the industry is currently experiencing and that will experience over the next decade or so, especially when you compare it to what it was five years ago. So despite all these exciting drivers for change that are finally moving the industry where it needs to go, there's still so much more room for growth and innovation that will revolutionize and finally raise the bar for women's health and well-being. With more thought leaders to join the discussion in the future, I hope you all stay tuned for the next one. If you would like to learn more about thought leaders, want to learn more about these types of subjects, or would like to be a guest on the show, please check out apollo-institute.org forward slash thought leaders. 